Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Everybody and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're happy to have Gregory Cochran on the show. He's the author with Henry Harpenting of The 10,000-Year Explosion, How Civilization Accelerated Human Evolution. You may have heard of the book as it's somewhat controversial. Uh, it is controversial because it challenges uh, many of the things that we believe about human evolution the primary proposition that it calls into question is that human evolution itself has stopped. Uh, we were taught, I was certainly taught um, a long time ago, that once humans developed culture, they, uh, in essence, figured out a way to avoid the pitfalls of natural selection. Cochrane and Harmoning say this is not true, that there is a good evidence that humans are uh, evolving in the ordinary natural selective way, uh, and that they have been doing so um, quite rapidly in recent times. And when I say recent times, I mean in the last, let's say, 60,000 years. Uh, The book will be very interesting to historians because uh, one of its primary theses is that it was agriculture that um, created the conditions for additional um, evolutionary pressure. That prior to agriculture, humans had to do one set of things, and then after agriculture, they had to do another set of things. And in between those two moments, it began about 10,000 years ago, a kind of uh, intense period of natural selection took place so that the uh, what might be called the hunter-gatherer model of Homo sapiens was replaced by the farmer model of Homo sapiens. Uh, there's a lot of interesting material here, um, and uh, I found it absolutely fascinating. Uh, I, I had some difficulty wrapping my mind around a part of it, but th- that's my own deficiency, I'm certain. Um, I think you'll enjoy the uh, interview with... Greg, I know that I enjoyed talking to him. Hi, Greg. Hi. How are you today? Oh, all right. Good. I'm glad to hear it. Um, I should tell our listeners that today that we have um, Greg Cochran on the show. Uh, He's the co-author with Henry Harpenting of The 10,000-Year Explosion, How uh, Civilization Accelerated Human Evolution. Uh, It's a book that I enjoyed very much because I have uh, a very minor background in evolutionary biology And uh, I constantly look for books like this that are at the intersection of uh, human history and especially human prehistory and um, human evolution. And uh, this one falls squarely um, into that category. So it was a particular treat for me to read it. And it's obviously a treat for me to talk to to Greg today. It's a very controversial book, and we'll come to that later. Uh, But first of all, Greg, I would like you to um, tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself, where you were born, where you grew up, and how you became interested in this stuff. Um, I was born in central Illinois. I uh, grew up in a small town there called Sullivan, Illinois. And then I attended the University of Illinois, where I majored in physics and eventually got a Ph.D. by some miracle. Uh, Almost we had an early version of the Internet, something called the Plato system, and it almost destroyed my academic career, <laughs> uh, along with a lot of other people, a lot of other people. Um, then I got working in aerospace. Uh, you worked at it, uh, uh, Hughes Aircraft, working on things like, uh, oh, 
laser systems, uh, uh, observation systems, uh, complex algorithms, stuff like that. And then, for reasons that are actually probably almost impossible to explain, I, I had always been sort of interested in biology, and I got more interested in biology. And essentially, because of a couple of random encounters, I ended up talking to Paul Ewald, who has done a lot in the evolution of disease. And we ended up writing some papers together, some ideas that I brought up that matched up with his to some extent. Mm -hmm. And then that led to running into some other people in biology, essentially over the Internet. That's how I ran into Henry Harpenny, my co-author, that mm -hmm. I do a lot of work with. And, and we sat around and argued about various things, but we found we agreed more often than not. And then after two or three years of, of just sort of you know, being uh, email friends, we, started to, we ran into a project we wanted to work on. Mm -hmm. Which was this, uh, this that led to this paper on the natural history of Ashkenazi intelligence, mm -hmm. and uh, somewhere in there we actually even I mean, we now meet actually from time to time. So, we know <laughs> we, so it's always nice to know the other guy physically exists and yeah. isn't just you know like a talking dog or something. <laughs> Reminds me of an old uh, joke in uh, the New Yorker. He says, "On the internet, no one knows you're a dog." Yeah, no, I've seen that. Yeah, but uh, um, and we've since done other work. Uh, and uh, so, you know, we, we we talk often, and we do a lot of work together. And uh, as to, you know, I just got interested in it, and I managed to not quite starve to death while doing so. That's mm -hmm. that's the actual miracle. Yeah, right. Well, that's about uh, that's that's uh, much of what uh, one can hope for out of a uh, life of the mind, at least in in my opinion. Um, let, let me um, ask you uh, just to begin taking us through the argument of the book, and um, let's begin at the beginning, and you have a chapter called The Conventional Wisdom. I think probably most of our listeners who are very well-educated and intelligent know that, and they probably know it by reading someone like Stephen Jay Gould, but why don't you tell us what the conventional wisdom is on the, uh, on the current state of evolution among homo sapiens? Um, I guess, you know, it's sort of hard to say for sure, because certainly not everybody subscribes in every detail to this general conventional wisdom, but I would say in most of the social sciences, including anthropology, uh, there's sort of an idea that evolu human evolution stopped at some convenient moment. Uh, usually with, a, with the idea that everybody is in some sense exactly the same, or at least every group has the same average mix. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, as far as I can tell, the only real reason for this assumption is that because it would ha have an answer they would like. I don't actually think there's ever been any evidence that it was true at all. Mm -hmm. And there's certainly no logical reason to expect it. Mm -hmm. uh, the, um, uh, particularly since the period in question, you know, basically since modern humans moved out of Africa, which is about 50,000 years ago, mm -hmm. is a period of very rapid change in all sorts of ways. First, you're moving out of, out of Africa to a new place. New places make new selective pressures. There's, you know, the things that work well in Africa won't always work well somewhere else mm -hmm. and vice versa. So that's that's a, an impulse for evolutionary change, and we and then and on top of that, humans the re, the very fact we were able to leave Africa was almost certainly because we'd gotten better at doing new things, mm -hmm. and those new things we were doing, as well as just the environment that we entered into, those caused new selective pressures. Mm -hmm. If you have suppose you have a weapon that allows you to kill an animal from without getting close to it. Uh, you know, say a spear thrower or a bow and arrow, mm -hmm. you can do things you couldn't do before. You can hunt animals you couldn't be, do before, and you don't have to be as big and husky. Mm -hmm. 
uh, you may do, you may not you may or may not need to cooperate as much as you did before when you used perhaps you know eight guys had to close in with a spear mm-hmm. before. So there's changes in you know what's the right personality in terms of fitting into the society and mm-hmm. so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, but those and then it then it changed more. Uh, you, the ice you know ice ages ended another drastic change uh, in the weather over the whole world. And then not long after that, in some areas, and a little longer in other areas, people started inventing agriculture, mm-hmm. which meant that people had a new diet. It meant that there were something like 100 times as many people because you could sustain a lot more people with this, which meant people more crowded, which meant that infectious disease was a much more serious problem than it happened before, which, of course, also causes evolutionary pressures. Mm-hmm. You had much more complex societies with chiefs as well as Indians. Mm-hmm. Uh, that seems not to have been too true for the hunter-gatherer societies in the past, but it's definitely true by the time you get to the pharaoh. Mm-hmm. And so basically every, every possible thing you can think of changed during this period, and we're supposed to think that humans responded to it by digging in their heels and refusing to evolve. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it never it, made any sense. I was going to say, isn't the argument, though, this is the one I think I was taught, and it probably comes out of Gould or something, and, and that is that uh, because uh, humans evolved culture, uh, they were able to dampen the effects of natural selection so that the number of offspring that your average human had uh, was relatively standard. So there wasn't really differential reproduction among different human groups. It's, but there, it, but well, that may be, well, I, I think generally they say it in a, in, a, in a simpler, less logical way than that, which is somehow if you have clothes, you don't have to worry about the cold anymore. Uh-huh. Or if you, in, but, but <laughs> you know, let's address all of that. Um, I mean, the point is, one problem is that often solving one problem creates another. I mean, you could say that, like, well, you have more food when you when you uh, develop agriculture, mm-hmm. but population increases until all of a sudden there's no food surplus anymore. This doesn't take very long. Mm-hmm. If you have even say three kids per family, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden they said you're just you're about where you were before, except you're more crowded again, which is different, and you're eating different foods which is different, but the problem didn't stay solved. And the other thing is, when you do solve a problem, which does happen once in a while, that itself changes selective pressures. As I mm-hmm. said, if you can find a way to hunt large animals that doesn't require so much physical strength of yours, automatically the selective pressures start disfavoring, say, really strong muscles because they are expensive. They take a lot of energy and mm-hmm. so forth. And so almost any time that you make a really major innovation, things are going to change. Now, as for the idea that Things changed so that uh, reproduction became more even, and that's what it would really take mm-hmm. to make uh, so that reproduction doesn't depend upon your personal characteristics or depends less than it used to. Mm-hmm. There's absolutely no reason I think that. I mean, I don't know what they're talking about. I don't know of no place where this was true. I mean, do they think that the pharaoh reproduced at the same rate as a typical serf? Mm-hmm. I don't. Uh, I mean, do we? Do they think that Genghis Khan reproduced at the same rate? as the average guy in China, mm-hmm. there's good genetic evidence that that's not true. It turns out mm-hmm. we have found people who are the direct male descendants in the male line of you know, the sons of the sons of the sons of mm-hmm. Genghis Khan. Well, for the average guy of a thousand years ago, that person has about, since the population expanded, he has about 20 male line descendants. Mm-hmm. Well, Genghis had 16, has 16 million. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, now, that's, that's a wild case, but, you know, it, the upper classes up reproduce the lower classes. That's kind of a point of being in the upper classes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people who were more disease resistant out reproduce the ones who were less so. Mm-hmm. The people whose person there's not the slightest bit of evidence 
that, uh, in fact, there's some direct genetic evidence that the variation increased. Mm-hmm. Because uh, if you look at the, uh, the amount of variation in Y chromosomes and hunter-gatherers, mm-hmm. uh, it's relatively, at least this has been done in Africa. I don't think this has been done everywhere. But then you compare it to the amount of variation in, among agricultural groups in Africa. Mm-hmm. There's more variation in the hunter-gatherers because they, you know, a higher fraction of guys had children. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the effective population is bigger. Mm-hmm. But once you start having farms, you have use farming, you have villages, and then you have chiefs. And chiefs, you know, you know when I say abuse power, I think I'm sort of using the same word twice. <laughs> uh I mean, so the effective fraction of males that had kids in agriculture is something like half as big mm-hmm. as it was among hunter-gatherers. Mm-hmm. So the idea that things are more equal, I said, no, we have solid evidence, at least in the places people looked in detail, that it went the other way. Mm-hmm. It, so, no, it's, I mean... So then the evidence, everybody... I was going to yeah. say, then the evidence suggests, uh, if we could just draw a distinction here, the evidence suggests that within particular populations that there was differential reproduction. And also, this is something you haven't mentioned, but we might add, and I'd like your thoughts on this, there was also obviously differential reproduction between human groups. Well, yeah, I mean, you have, well, I mean, in one sense, of course, some groups expanded much more than others. Yeah. But it's also true that some of them went through this transition and some of them didn't, Mm -hmm. uh, or or went through different flavors of the transition. Mm -hmm. So you could have some people, say, uh, uh, lived in a place where populations became dense uh, and where there was a lot more hierarchy, a lot more chiefs, a Mm -hmm. lot more... Uh, even sometimes up to the point of, of you know, government. Mm-hmm. Uh, and other places, at least some people, never did this at all. I mean, in Australia, they didn't have any farming, although they were starting to kind of sort of move in that direction, but it never really quite happened mm-hmm. before they were uh, you know, visited by the Europeans. Mm-hmm. Um, and they didn't, have, they didn't have governments, they didn't have states, they didn't have pyramids and, mm-hmm. you know, and ziggurats and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and they didn't have high population density, mm-hmm. at least not compared to you know, places like Egypt. Uh, and they, had, you know, they were vulnerable to infectious disease because they hadn't gone through it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the path, but even, it's probable that even the path in, say, Egypt was different in some ways than it was in China or say than it was in Central America under the Aztecs, mm-hmm. because none of these things are exactly the same. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, in several, one of the simplest ways we know is the, the timing is somewhat different. You know, some agriculture is older, even in the places where there is agriculture, in some places like the Middle East, it's almost 10,000 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other places, it's, it's, it can be 2,000 years old or 1,000 mm-hmm. years old. I mean, mm-hmm. in some small groups, it's, they never had it happen at all. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the... All these things should change the course of human evolution, but it's not changed the same way in every place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I see. So, um, yeah, that was a very good answer, and I, I think I understand what you mean. How would you meet that? And you do meet this in the book. Um, and I should note that I read a couple of reviews of the books, and, and one of the most prominent reviews says that you don't meet this objection, but in fact you do. Uh, what do you say to people who say that um, uh, among human populations that most of the variation is within the population and not between the population? This is something that is repeated again and again and again and again. There are well, two, two or three things, ways of looking at this. One is, well, I think a very important way, is to consider that, by the way, this is true in a, in a technical genetic sense. Saying if we look at how many different varieties of a given gene there are, or how many differences there are in, in the nucleotide level, it is true that most of the varieties within a population instead of between. But a lot of that variation, in fact, a great majority of it, particularly is within a population, is neutral variation, which means it doesn't do anything. Mm-hmm. More, I am more interested in the part that does do things. Mm-hmm. And when you see differences between populations, 
at least in many cases, those differences were, were driven because something worked in a given place and didn't work in another place. Mm-hmm. So, for example, light skin somehow worked in Europe and North Asia, mm-hmm. but it didn't work in Africa or Melanesia. Mm-hmm. And those and those genetic differences do things. Mm-hmm. They change your skin color. They, and they may change your how well you uh, absorb vitamin D. Mm-hmm. They change your vulnerability to skin cancer. And they may mm-hmm. do some other things as well. We don't know all the things they do. Uh, but the point is, the, the, the between group things are fairly recent. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, pretty much since the human expansion out of Africa, which is only about 50,000 years old, mm-hmm. maybe 60. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they've evolved rapidly, and it looks like most of them were functional. Mm-hmm. So a lot. The other thing is that on any given trait, what you need to look at is how different the trait is. For example, if I said, well, there's a lot of genetic variation, but these people are all exactly the same height, I said, well, I guess it probably doesn't matter, does it? Mm-hmm. Or suppose I can find a difference in one single nucleotide of one gene that makes a difference. I said, so you have to weight things by the actual differences. For mm-hmm. example, this is something recent. There's a, there's a variant of a, of, a, of a protein that's involved in, that's expressed on red blood cells that, uh, that essentially people in... West Africa and most people in all of Central Africa, they they don't have the same variant as other people. They have a a slight difference. They're called Duffy negative. Mm-hmm. I mean, and when I say most of them, it means like in a place like Nigeria, like Nigeria, it'd be ninety nine percent. Whereas in a place you know in China, it'd be zero. Mm-hmm. That's how different it is. Mm-hmm. Now we know a very this one. We kind of think we know why it's there. That this particular change gives you complete protection against a particular variant of malaria called Vivax, mm-hmm. which is not the most dangerous, but it's the second most dangerous mm-hmm. kind of malaria. And if you have this difference, you don't get it. That's, mm-hmm. that's how the, 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 uh, the malaria parasite got into the cell, that particular variety of malaria parasite. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you, the, the, it's like the door is gone. Mm-hmm. Can't, you don't get sick from this. Mm-hmm. And, um, but at the same time, it turns out that people who have this, they have a lower white cell count. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, which essentially means that everybody in Africa, well, or, or you know, 99% or something, has this some, it's moderately lower, called a standard deviation lower. Mm-hmm. People had wondered about it, and it can sometimes matter two ways. One, for medical reasons, you might think the guy is, is dangerously low, but actually he's, he's kind of within his own normal zone. Mm-hmm. So it's important to understand this mm-hmm. in, in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, is probably it has at least some small bad consequences because if that was the right level, everybody would have it everywhere mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. I mean, they can't be huge because nobody has noticed any severe problems connected mm-hmm. with this, mm-hmm. and they probably are not as va- not as unpleasant as the pleasant thing, which is you never get this kind of malaria. Mm-hmm. But the point is, this is a single change, you know, one single nucleotide out of three billion mm-hmm. changed, mm-hmm. and that means that all. That could cause a noticeable change. Mm-hmm. So you have to look at at the the consequences of genes. And mm-hmm. and for example, you can't make any consequence go away by saying, well, statistics. So statistics say that uh, really does this mean that really pygmies aren't short? Mm-hmm. Does this mean that really, if you if you understood it properly, that the Watusi aren't really tall? They just look tall. Mm-hmm. Does this? I mean. You, I mean, any given trait is just as different as it looks to be. Mm-hmm. So then what you're, I mean, sa- what, what you're saying then is, uh, if I could just uh, summarize, well, let me, yes. not summarize isn't the right word, uh, let me simplify it, that it is really the quality of the difference that matters, not the quantity of the difference. Uh, you, let's, let's put it this way. Both matter, but you better consider, you better consider the quality as well. Yes, I see uh, what you mean. Uh-huh. Uh, 
Uh, but I mean, for example, the stand that you know for dwarfism. Uh, again, that's a one nucleotide change from mm-hmm. the standard kind of dwarfism. Mm-hmm. But you'd still call that kind of a significant difference at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. If, so if, if you're short, let me um, uh, let me ask you to um, explain to our audience one thing that you mentioned uh, uh, en passant just a moment ago, and that is that you can somehow date the uh, antiquity of these particular mutations, um, and that is including ones that are single nucleotide. Uh, how do you do that? Well, there are a couple of ways. I mean, by the way, some of these ways work better if they're, uh, if they're not too old. I mean, some of these methods fail after a while. Mm-hmm. But one thing you know is that uh, essentially all genes start out as you have a single version of a gene, and then, other, then you have mutations, you have different versions. You can talk about the age of a particular gene. Mm-hmm. Okay, one way to estimate how old it is is to simply see how many differences there are between one version and another. Mm-hmm. If you, especially if you look at the... See, some of the differences really don't matter. They're probably kind of random noise and, you know, in, in, in parts of the gene that don't have much effect, um, neutral changes. And if you, you can get some kinds of estimates by seeing how many differences there are. That's one approach. And the more differences That's, there are, the older, the older it will it be, yes, because uh, these mutations happen at a, at a reasonably regular rate. Uh, you know, so in you a sense, enough, it's, a, it's a clock. Yeah, roughly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another thing you can do is you look at the region around it and you see how unshuffled or how it looks. If you see the same neighbors out some extended period, mm-hmm. that can happen if you have a gene that is advantageous and it spreads rapidly, a new, a new version of a gene that spreads rapidly. Mm-hmm. It sort of carries its neighbors with, with it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's sort of a shuffling effect, but that shuffling is slow. If the, um, It's like cutting cards. Mm-hmm. If, you, uh, if the gene has increased rapidly, like in the past few thousand years or, or maybe even 20,000 years, uh, there'll be a region around it which is all the same. Mm-hmm. It's the original, what, what you, know, you know, the original neighbors of the first mutation, mm-hmm. and 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 the wider this region is, it means basically the more recent it is. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the particular version of the um, there's a mutation uh, affecting the activity of a gene that makes the enzyme that that helps break down the main sugar in milk, lactose. Mm-hmm. This gives you lactose uh, tolerance, mm-hmm. and in Europeans, this appears to have spread very rapidly, been very strongly favored, mm-hmm. and it and around it, there's a region of about a million bases wide mm-hmm. that is essentially the same in in essentially all the people who have this version, and that helps you estimate how old it is. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple of ways. Mm-hmm. Those are there are other ways. By the way, there's another, there's yet a third way, which is actually going to be very powerful, which is if you want to see how long this thing has been, certain thing has been common. If you can find skeletons that are 5,000, 7,000, 10,000, 15,000 years old, which mm-hmm. you can in some places, mm-hmm. in some cases you can just test them and see if it was there yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a third way of telling how, how old something is, if it was, or at least you know, how old it was and common. Mm-hmm. Because if it wasn't, you know, that's a very direct way. I mm-hmm. kind of like it. Yeah. Uh, it's not as easy because you have to find the skeleton and everything, but yes. it's sort of hard to argue with it. Uh-huh. No, absolutely. So let me ask you uh, another uh, related question, um, and this one has to do with something that's a little bit counterintuitive, but I think once, and you do a nice job of explaining this in the book, once you sort of explain it in simple terms, it's, it's, it becomes uh, much easier to understand, and that is how something can um, start in a single instance and become universal in quite a large population relatively quickly? Well, the, the key is exponential growth, which is an important thing, but somehow really against human intuition. It really is. Uh, I agree. It's hard to wrap your mind around it. Yeah. Well, first, we start out what happens in the very beginning. You have, by chance, a change in a gene that gives you some sort of advantage. Maybe it protects against a disease. 
Maybe it lets you digest foods you couldn't before. Maybe it makes you smarter. Maybe it makes you um, have stronger bones. You know, there's many things that Mm -hmm. could be an advantage. Mm -hmm. Um, These are rare, but they're really important when they happen. They're very rare. Uh, But uh, the typical fate of a new gene like this is that it gets lost by chance, even if it's got an advantage. For Mm -hmm. example... Suppose you had two kids, which is sort of the, the equal, you know, the break-even number. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, each has a 50% chance of carrying this. You have one copy. They might not have it. And if you have two kids and neither of them have it, that's the end of the story. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't go into the next generation. Mm-hmm. If, um, or, you know, and, and or, you, or if you're, if you're, you know, stepped on by a mammoth, that's it. <laughs> Even if you, you might potentially have had an advantage, but, but luck and fate matter and so forth. Mm-hmm. But, um, but it turns out that if it does not get lost by chance, and it isn't always, uh, there's a certain tendency for it to grow with time because it has this advantage. And in the book, I, I actually came up with, an, with a model that's very, very close, and I also think kind of uh, interesting to people. See, there's a very similar thing, which is suppose you were playing roulette and you had a system, um, I mean, one that worked, unlike all the other systems. Mm-hmm. So instead of knowing whether it's red or black, you know, instead of, you know, it's like suppose red, black, or 50, you know, 50-50 chance, suppose you knew which one it would be 55% of the time. Mm-hmm. Not a huge, and then we give you one chip, which yeah. is like this mutation, start out with one copy. Yeah. Okay, it turns out your chance of getting all the money at Monte Carlo, breaking the bank, owning the casino, probably becoming the new Prince Rainier, yeah. is about 18%. That's pretty good. With one it's chip. not bad. Yeah, I think if bad. I give you, I'll take if I give odds. you, if I give you twenty chips, it's almost a sure thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, this this involves betting only a few chips, like at the beginning, only one chip at a time. It's funny. I have but, a, I have. I was going to say I have a friend who's a, a stockbroker, a stock analyst, and he says if I'm right fifty one percent, if I if I could be right fifty one percent of the time, I'd be the richest man on earth. Well, see, Warren <laughs> Buffett is probably right fifty two percent of the yeah, time. Yeah, right, exactly. And yeah. he is at least <laughs> yeah. on any given day sometimes yeah. the richest man. Right. On so earth. these very small differences can have a huge effect over time. Yeah, I mean, and the chance of making it to big success, essentially spreading till everybody has it is essentially twice the percentage advantage. So if you have a 5% advantage, you have about a 10% shot mm-hmm. of, of going to high frequency. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, at least in a simple, in a simple model. I mean, that's, it basically tells you roughly. So, and, and the thing is, it doesn't take as long as you think because the, big, the more people have it, the faster it spreads. I mm-hmm. mean, if they have, let's say, 5% more children than average, mm-hmm. yet when you have 20 people, that means the next generation you have 21. That may seem like small, but when you have a million people, it means you have a million fifty thousand. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I, you know, I think yeah, I think that notion is becoming more intuitive uh, to people, and I think largely as a result. It's like compound interest for a really long it, time. It is like compound interest, but I was going to say it becomes more intuitive if you're on something like Facebook or LinkedIn or something like that. Well, that when, might be the, when it, when the, it the tells other, you you have bazillions of connections. When in fact the other example I, people, I, yeah. I gave, which is uh, rabbits in Australia. Yeah, right. that's a good one. Go ahead, and give that because one. Because it, yeah. it took only a people, someone. Some crazed person released a number of rabbits in Australia. About ten years later, they covered Australia, mm-hmm. and it didn't take. It took a you know it took a couple of years to fill up his farm, mm-hmm. but it only took another eight or so to fill up the whole continent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now you, you know the, the course of a favorable gene is like this. Only the time scale is slower uh-huh. because you know rabbits are, are, are replicating every two two months or something like that. Yeah, I don't know what the gestation. Three months. Short. Um, and well, with humans, it'd be more like 20, 25 years. Yeah. 
But if you just multiply it by that constant, yeah, the same thing happens. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you do a very nice job, and I would recommend people, you know, who don't know much about um, uh, population uh, biology, population genetics, to, to read the book because there are lots of really terrific um, analogies in it that I think can help you. Well, I was, uh, grasp I was trying to things. think of ways to. You know, so make it so simple that even the professionals could understand. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I often say things like that myself, and it gets me in trouble. Uh, the, um, uh, the, 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 the. So that's the general theoretical framework for the book, and that is that these minor differences really matter. They can spread through populations. That despite the fact that human groups look very similar, there can be um, differentia specific. Well, but they don't look very similar. Well, they, you, okay, they, they they look very similar from the strictly technical point of view of uh, um, of of aggregate genetics. Oh, uh, well, yeah, but I mean, okay, if you yeah. actually, in the ordinary sense of how, what do yeah. they look yeah, like? Yeah, we don't look the same. No, there's no We're actually about, about the second most, ver you know, there are other species that have a wide range. Yeah. And, um, but of, of, of a mammalian species, we are about the second most varied one in yeah. terms of, you know, how many standard deviations of difference there are in a lot of measurable traits. Mm -hmm. You know, we're talking morphological traits, you know, the skull, yeah. the, the shoulders, the, you know, we're about the, the most varied are dogs. Yeah, obviously, yeah, dogs. We're the we're the second most varied. Yeah, I see. Okay, so I'll, I'll grant you that. I was speaking purely in a technical sure, way about, sure. about you know sort of these quantitative. Um, By the way, there's more in that same sense. Um, they're probably about 85% of genetic variation in that technical sense is within groups rather than between groups. Yeah, no, that's you know in dogs it's 70% is within mm -hmm. groups rather than between groups. So mm -hmm. by that standard Lewontin argument, you know a given. Dachshund could easily could really be in that technical sense more like a given Great Dane than it is like another dachshund. Yeah. But yeah. somehow in practice, yeah, that doesn't, doesn't actually like that. seem to be practically yeah. so. No, I see just what you mean. So um, here, wait a minute. I have to. I think I have to sneeze. I'll edit this out. Hold on. I'm sorry. No, I don't have to sneeze. Okay, I'm fine. So that, that's, that's. I'm sorry. That's the general theoretical sort of overview here. Uh, I'm going to ask you now to kind of take us through what you think were the um, the, the big changes. That is, moments at which selective pressure uh, became more intense and um, new uh, variants of uh, humanity appeared. And so let's start with the very first one, and that is integration with uh, Neanderthals. Uh, we generally don't like to think that uh, you have some funny sentences in the book about um, not liking the idea that we made it with Andro Neanderthals because it's icky. And <laughs> I, I have to say that I'm in that I, camp. I kind of think that that's how people think about it. <laughs> yeah. But uh, uh, So what is the evidence the, that we did? I, I don't think, this one is not certain, but we think it's merely very likely. Uh -huh. uh, well, the reason is, is when modern humans expanded out of Africa about 50,000 years ago, there were already, this has sort of happened before, a couple million years earlier, mm -hmm. and there were other groups, other what they call archaic humans, mm -hmm. uh, that existed in Middle East Europe and Southern Asia, or maybe up to Peking, which are, uh, in the in Middle East and in Europe, we call them Neanderthals. We know quite a bit about them. We have mm -hmm. a lot of skeletons. Uh, in East Asia, we have a few skeletons we know less, but there were also what they call evolved erectus in East Asia. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, it is, it's a fair chance that uh, humans, as they expanded, did some uh, mating with these other different kinds of humans. They weren't, hey, they weren't that different. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at their tools 100,000 years ago, they weren't, you could hardly tell the difference, mm -hmm. at least between Neanderthals and, say, people in Africa. Mm -hmm. But they looked different. I mean, you know, we, we know, you know, people have heard about Neanderthals. They know they had brow ridges. They were built very heavily and strongly. Mm -hmm. They were, uh, you know, they were different in important ways. But, you know, look, uh, as I 
I could probably make a lot of analogies involving sailors and traveling salesmen. And, <laughs> Please don't. And, uh, and, uh, the, and point, the, the, bar, point is, the point is taken. The bar closing in, in another 10 yeah. minutes. Right, yeah, the point but, is taken. Yeah, stuff happens. And yeah. so our, our argument is basically that uh, we think – by the way, there are people who said it would have never happened because they were just too different, and humans don't do things like that. And I can – I'm afraid I can prove yes, beyond a okay. shadow of a doubt that yeah. humans do. Yeah, anybody with Internet access could right this second, but we're not going to go there. So We will yeah. read the book. I <laughs> yeah. do give some examples. Yeah. Not a um, lot of detail, but enough to make the point. Okay, great. Uh, dolphins, for example. At any rate, the, uh, uh, but the point is, you know, from biological analogies with other species that have split, you know, their sister species, they have a common ancestor that's not too long before. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case of modern humans and Neanderthals, it would be about half a million years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, with that degree of distance, every case we know, they're still able to interbreed. Hmm. Now, that doesn't prove for sure that you could, but it's likely. Mm-hmm. The other point, which is something which we think is important, is that if you have even a little interbreeding, and there probably was not a lot, because we don't see a lot of evidence of funny local genes in Europe or something that mm-hmm. look like that you don't see in Africa. Mm-hmm. But the point is, you have even a little. That's a chance for favorable genes, and some of the Neanderthal genes are likely to have been good at something, mm-hmm. if only good at surviving in a in a place where, you know, the weather is colder and so forth, mm-hmm. or or maybe to resistance to the local disease. Mm-hmm. It's likely that if they had any favorable genes, we pick some. Those spread rapidly, just mm-hmm. like those. Uh, they're they're you know like a fatal mutation, only you you got it by a different route mm-hmm. by picking it up from another group. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even if there was a very limited number of total matings with Neanderthals, total, ne- total half-breed children, mm-hmm. uh, if that number was like overall time was 50, mm-hmm. then it's likely we picked up quite a few of their favorable genes. Mm-hmm. Now, this, and that's just a population genetic argument. Mm-hmm. That's just, if you just look at the numbers, it's because if you pick up a gene that's theirs, it's not much different, and you only pick up 20 copies of it, it's likely not here now. Mm-hmm. It's likely to have been lost by chance. Mm-hmm. But again, if you have one of these that had a 5% advantage, it's likely to still be here. Mm-hmm. So that means that at a few genes, we could most, we, maybe everybody's a Neanderthal at mm-hmm. certain genes. Mm-hmm. It's possible. Mm-hmm. It was quite a long time ago. It had, would have had time to spread to many places. Mm-hmm. I knew some people said, well, are you trying to say that this would only happen to Europeans? I said, count it out. We're talking 40, 30, 40,000 years. Mm-hmm. That's enough time to spread everywhere mm-hmm. if it's really useful. Mm-hmm. If it was only useful in Europe, yeah, it probably wouldn't have spread beyond Europe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I said, but we, we think it's likely, and, and our, our point is, even if there's a very limited amount of interbreeding, it's still likely. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, now, we don't say it's certain. I mean, for example, if there had been some reason that interbreeding was impossible, well, then it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. But uh, if it did happen, it was likely to have some positive, again, positive consequences in a sense because, you know, you only pick up the stuff that works, mm-hmm. or rather you're enormously more likely to pick up the stuff mm-hmm. that works. And uh, and the other thing is, the amount of things you could pick up in a short period, supposing you're encountering the Neanderthal, mm-hmm. after sort of, you know, previously largely, you know, uh, separated from each other by deserts and things, mm-hmm. uh, in principle it could be quite a few things. Mm-hmm. Now, there's an example like this, which was actually talked about just in the last two weeks. Uh, they're starting to see black wolves, there didn't used to be any black wolves. Mm-hmm. Turns out that this particular gene, wolves are picked up from dogs. Mm-hmm. And there is a suspicion from the nature of the gene that this mutation somehow is protecting against some disease. It's not really so much for the color mm-hmm. as it is for something else the gene does. Mm-hmm. But the point is, you know, 
wolves, they have states, you know, wolves will sometimes mate with dogs. It doesn't happen a whole lot, but it doesn't have to happen a whole lot if the gene that leaks over is useful. It'll spread by itself. Mm-hmm. So uh, there is, that, that's a, that was actually been reported on in just, I think, the last couple of weeks. It's yeah. a, but it's an example of integration in mammals mm-hmm. uh, between the, now, dogs and uh, and. And wolves are not that separate. I mean, they were both the same, probably only 20,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. But you can also interbreed with coyotes, and they split more than a million years ago. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it just, it just goes to show these things do happen. Yeah, well, it is a, it, it, I think that is a much more intuitive argument in the sense that these sorts of diffusionary practices are a bit more intuitive because they go on every day in our own lives. I mean, when we find something really useful, uh, it, it, it usually spreads through our own populations relatively quickly. And similarly with your yeah, black wolves. Some, or, yeah. I mean, it's something like that. Or, I mean, like when, uh, well, think about it when the, after Columbus, crops like corn mm-hmm. were introduced to the old world, mm-hmm. and they spread with great speed in mm-hmm. the places where they worked. Mm-hmm. I mean, people who had never heard of Western Europe were growing corn mm-hmm. 100 years after, who never heard of Columbus, never even heard of America. Mm-hmm. They, they're growing corn. It's just because this thing works. There were mm-hmm. people in Nepal growing corn. Mm-hmm. 100 years later, they said, oh, we've always grown it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, no, you know, yeah. nobody remembered exactly. Yeah, I see. Somebody's great-grandfather brought it in. Yeah, no, I see exactly what you mean. So that's the Neanderthal argument, and it's based primarily on this uh, population uh, genetic basis. Um, let, let's there, 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 are, there are some genetic things that point in this direction, but they're not, I wouldn't call them solid yet. Mm-hmm. There, there, uh, there are also some, you know, for people who do skeletal things, you mm-hmm. know, bone morphology, there are people who do this have long thought that some of the skeletons, the old skeletons in Europe, that are after Neanderthals mm-hmm. and humans met look like they got a touch of Neanderthal in them in certain features. Mm-hmm. But you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that this is definitive. It's, it's suggestive. Would you, would you um, mm-hmm. make bold to uh, estimate the consensus among, uh, among specialists? Well, the consensus is that it never happened at all. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, okay. the consensus. The consensus is that, or another comment says, well, even if there was, it was a small level and therefore biologically insignificant. Mm-hmm. Now, the, now there the consensus is just that is on that technical point, which is it would have been insignificant. Mm-hmm. They're provably wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I see what you uh, But that's because the people who do this, paleontologists mm-hmm. for the most part, they know a whole lot less population genetics than you do. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but uh, no, nice it is because <laughs> zero is a small. Yeah. They don't know any at all. Yeah, not a is. not a not a line. Yeah, People zero. don't go into paleontology because they like math. Okay, <laughs> I see what you're saying. They don't yeah. know any of it. With all due respect to our paleontological, I may uh, be wrong. <laughs> By the way, I, if somebody proves me wrong, I'll admit it. Uh, yeah, but I'm, I think, in general, I think I'm thinking of Chris Stringer. I don't think he's ever done this. I've, I have no doubt that we're going to hear from them. So let's move on to the uh, the, the the second. Um, kind of moment of transition, disjunctural moment, and that is, uh, well, I think, one that will be much, of much more interest to, to historians in the traditional sense, and that is agriculture. Maybe you could describe exactly your argument about um, how agriculture changed the human genome. Well, we, we think that uh, as, um, you know, as a consequence of agriculture, popping goes up on something on the order of 100 times in the places where it's adopted. Uh, people start living in villages. People, start, people are sedentary. People start having you know, more complicated societies where, you know, you have upper classes that live off the surplus or the extracted, not, mm-hmm. not very voluntarily, from the other people. Mm-hmm. You start having, some cases, you have fairly strong governments. You have disease is much more of a problem than it used to be. Uh, you're, although 
in a sense, you have about as much food. It isn't as well balanced a meal as it was before. Mm-hmm. The amount of carbohydrates goes up a lot. The amount of protein and vitamins goes down. And one way you can see this is that in many parts of the world, after, in probably not the day that people adopt agriculture, but after the time when most people are doing it, and also land is no longer super common, super available. So mm-hmm. you know, you you used to be maybe a little hungry as a hunter-gatherer. Now you're a little hungry as a farmer mm-hmm. because population has increased to meet the, the food availability. Mm-hmm. They're shorter. They're like in the Middle East, uh, people got shorter by something like five inches. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's only recently that people are finally getting as tall as they were back before agriculture. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, I mean, we're, we're about there now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, uh, it wasn't a very balanced diet. Uh, and, but there's some evidence that a lot of genes... You know, new versions of genes that help you deal with this diet spread. Uh, things uh, that, like vitamin transporters, uh, mm-hmm. th- uh, things like uh, uh, the most famous is again is lactose tolerance mm-hmm. because there there was a a new a new food that was available. I mean, it it wouldn't have it would have been hard to make a living living off lactose if there weren't any domesticated animals, unless you had a whole lot of wives or something. <laughs> yeah, that's what you're saying. It's sort of a difficult thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but after people domesticated cows and goats, there was this potential source of food that, that, by the way, kids could use and probably did all along. Like, suppose you had some kid, his mother dies or they're a little short on milk. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they were giving them cow's milk before people were generally lactose tolerant because Small kids are always lactose tolerant. The, the difference is when you, you, if you keep this ability in adulthood. Mm-hmm. But that that spread um, that was very favored when it happened, and spread. There's a version that spread over much of Europe and down into India. There's also and it's, and also into North Africa and even a little tiny bit south of the Sahara. But in the eastern Africa, this group this this uh, gene never got there, mm-hmm. evidently. And then later, when when uh, raising cows was an important thing in East Africa, uh, a local a couple of local mutations spread, so that, for example, the Tutsi in Rwanda, mm-hmm. who are the descendants of cattle raising peoples, mm-hmm. they're 90% lactose tolerant, mm-hmm. but they have different mutations and younger ones mm-hmm. than the than the European one. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a third set of things which you find among desert Arabs, and they have their own lactose tolerance mutation. And it's also pretty recent, and that seems to have to be connected to the domestication of the camel. Mm-hmm. But, but again, there's an interesting point here because this uh, general European one, it never got to these areas. If it had, it would be the dominant one there because you know, if it got there first, mm-hmm. in, you know, 20, 30 copies, mm-hmm. uh, a local copy would never catch up with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this means there was amazing. I mean, basically, it means that people who uh, raised cattle and had this European lactose thing really never got down to Yemen in any numbers at all. I mean, mm-hmm. by, we're not, you know, less than 10 of them probably mm-hmm. uh, and lived. Mm-hmm. Uh, and similarly, into places like the Sudan, they just never got there. Mm-hmm. Uh, why that is, I don't, I mean, some of it's geographical. Some of it, in the case of the Sudan, is there may, you know, it could be hard, it, before modern medicine, it could be hard for outsiders to penetrate Africa. Mm-hmm. You'd get sick. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I see. So, in, in many of these cases, we see I, I don't know about many, but at least in a couple that I remember from the book, uh, you, you have convergent evolution. And, and I think you just mentioned that. That is, yeah, some, you get the uh, same, you, you skin a cat in two different ways. Maybe you could talk a little bit well, about that. Well, another way of looking, I mean, and if you look at, uh, say, North Asians and Europeans, they both have light skin. Obviously, they're not, they don't look exactly the same, the skin tone and everything, but they're mm-hmm. pretty light. But now, we just in the past two or three or four years, we've learned 
probably the majority of the genes involved with this, mm-hmm. and they are different in the two re- groups. Mm-hmm. So they've gotten light skin in different ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. So and probably it, other things. I mean, like in many human populations, uh, body, you know, the, the skeleton has gotten lighter. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably in all human populations, but more so in some than others mm-hmm. over the past ten thousand years. But there's reasons to think that it isn't the same genes changing in every group. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, now, these differences that we've talked about thus far, there are, I, most of them are um, either uh, visible to the eye, let's put it that way, or um, they, they can um, be discerned by one or another um, genetic analysis. But you mentioned in the book um, a, a much broader set of behavioral strategies, some of which are determined by collections of genes that might have been favorable and therefore been selected for during the process of the adoption of agriculture and serotonization. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Well, here, here our evidence is far from complete, but, like, but, but this is also true even in contemporary situations. Like, we know that a lot of things have high heritability. You are, uh, say, IQ or certain kinds of personality traits have mm-hmm. high heritability, mm-hmm. which is to say you are more similar to your parents than a random draw of people. Mm-hmm. Not perfectly similar, but you know, significantly similar. Mm-hmm. You know, height is heritable, mm-hmm. IQ is heritable, personality is heritable, but somewhat less so. Uh, but the point is, these things happen. Mm-hmm. You know, there you are somewhat like your parents, mm-hmm. uh, more so than, a, than if you just picked a person at random. And in ways that that uh, things like twin studies and uh, in ways that are not just, not only not just because of the way your parents raised you, but not much because of the way your parents raised you. you For think. example, I, IQ of adopted kids is not correlated at all with that of their parents, mm-hmm. of their adoptive parents, but it is, cor- it is correlated with their genetic parents. I see. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, so, but IQ does not determine all of this. Re- of where, where, I mean, genetics is not, it's not the only thing influencing your IQ, but it turns out the way you were raised has little effect on adult IQ, mm-hmm. even though we'd all like it to. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we just did all the right things, your kid will be right in answers. It's not that much up to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I, guess, I guess what I'm driving at here is that... But, 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 but the point is, since these things are heritable, uh-huh. that means that, that if some of them work better than others in the new situations, uh-huh. they'll change in frequency. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, I was just leading up to that. I was going to say uh, I, I, the, the, the uh, one of the things I um, I'll, sometimes my students will come in and they'll say I would like to go to graduate school, and I'll say, well, how long can you sit in one place? <laughs> because that, because if you oh, can yeah. sit, if you can sit in one place for a long time, then you're a prime candidate for graduate school. Because if you aren't, reason. then you're. <laughs> That's probably one reason I was a marginal candidate. Yeah, no, I can sit in one place for a really long time. And if, in fact, sitting in one place conferred upon someone a terrific uh, kind of um, um, uh, uh, advantage in fecundity, then we would expect that. that Well, but there's, you know, almost every psychological trait has some heritability, which means has some influence by genes. If it's influenced by genes, then if that, you know, if having or not having that trait or having more or less of it Uh starts to have a, you know, has effects on your success, uh, then... Then that then those things can change over yeah. time. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I, I guess I guess I just want to press you here just a little bit because I, I mean I find this very interesting. What were the specific traits that you think were selected for? I think that people were selected for submission to authority once there was such a thing mm-hmm. as greater authority. Because mm-hmm. I think that if you don't, in many situations, you ended up dead. Mm-hmm. So I think that I think that in hunter gatherers, and this is a lot of this is. Uh, from saying what, you know, Harp, Henry Harpenden spent mm-hmm. quite a w- long time with the Bushmen at, at one point. He's mm-hmm. like, I, I was once asking, so 
so you have a lot of guys who both do population genetics and also spend a lot of field work with. He said, "I'm it." Yeah, no, I imagine that's true. I mean, I'm saying, but that—that's you should though, really. You yeah. know, it's better to, right. to have both kinds of perspectives. Uh-huh. At any rate, uh, but they don't have bosses. Yeah. They don't really have tribal chieftains. They have, they do have some people that people say, yeah, we should probably listen to that guy. He's pretty sensible. But that's uh-huh. about it. Yeah. And when somebody tries to be a boss, they make merciless fun of you. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, it just sounds kind of wonderful. But uh, the uh, but we do, and we have for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and agricultural peoples have bosses. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have bosses of bosses. They mm-hmm. have hierarchical civilizations. Uh, you know, you're under a lot of other people's influence and control. There's all sorts of people telling you you can't do this and you have to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's easier for some people, to, certainly today, it's easier for some people to put up with this than others or to fit into it than others. Yeah. And I think in, over the long haul, people who didn't fit into it very well or were just naturally super rebellious probably didn't do as well. Mm-hmm. And they probably don't have as many, like probably in a lot of simple ways they were dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, no, I see what you mean. Uh, yeah. But uh, so I think that there's probably been, uh, you know, you could call it greater submissiveness, you could call it greater cooperation, mm-hmm. uh, and some of it might depend on your point of view. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of it would call it human domestication. Yeah, I, that's what I would call it, domestication. It's uh, funny because I, I did, once I did a, um, a kind of review of the literature on the uh, differential performance of uh, girls and boys in grade school, and it turns out yeah, that girls, girls, much more than girls do much better than boys in grade school on average. And and they they did a lot of interviews with teachers, and the and the the, the explanation was more or less uniform that uh, that girls are just better behaved, and that environment um, rewards being better behaved. And that's why they do better. Now, if that could be translated into some sort of, um, you know, genetic advantage—that is, advantage in, in reproduction—you could see how it could re- recapitulate itself through an entire population. Yeah, I mean, well, that, that would be another thing. We, we, if we want to offend, probably all sorts of people. I don't want to offend anybody, but you go ahead. Increasing, <laughs> increasing feminization, right? Yeah. That would be another. I hadn't thought of that one before. Yeah. Thank you. I'll, I'll, I don't I'll think you know. Sure to give I, you, I'll make sure to give you credit. I don't. I don't. I, yeah, I'm sure that's not an original idea. By this notion of human domestication. Uh, no, probably not. No, no, I haven't sure. thought of it in those lines. Yeah, that, but but this notion of human domestication, I, I think that it, it is. It, well, I mean, some of it is like when you're actor, interacting with l- large groups. I mean, there are things that are qualitatively different. I mean, mm-hmm. you're going to have more rules and fewer direct. You know, just knowing everybody, you can't know everybody if there's mm-hmm. a thousand people. Yeah. In the same sense that you can if there's thirty, it's not mm-hmm. really possible. Mm-hmm. So you have to, uh, you know, in the, you have to deal in different ways, sort of with abstractions or rules, as opposed to just knowing everybody's personality or mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, so I, I would guess that there's quite a few differences uh, just from you know the scale. Mm-hmm. I mean, w- one thing that we get from that genetic data is that somehow. There, you know, there were rewards to being a chief instead of a regular guy. Mm-hmm. And, again, once there were chiefs, mm-hmm. and we have a lot of evidence of that. I mean, uh, one thing which I find it interesting that people seem to have trouble understanding it, uh, I think they should read more Dickens or something, mm-hmm. is that uh, in the past there were some people who were on top. We'll call them aristocrats or lords or rich merchants or something like that. But most people weren't. <laughs> most people were not doing that well. I mean, uh, a simple example is I said if the population as a whole is running even, if the population is not growing, and if the rich merchants don't have too much trouble raising three or four kids, somebody else is having trouble raising two. It's got to be, right? Yeah, no, that's right. And uh, when you think of, like, uh, in, in Europe, uh, the poorest people were always 
uh, dwindling away in China and mm-hmm. some other places. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had to be. I mean, if you, for example, if you were a laborer who didn't have a farm, didn't own any land, I don't think those people replaced themselves. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think the prosperous farmers and up did. Mm-hmm. And there's probably some group in the middle that was close to breaking even. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is why you could see things, not just like Genghis Khan, but other things. That, you know, there are signs with certain lines of chieftains and mm-hmm. so forth. Have you know they have a lot of descendants? There's a there's a there's the O'Neills in Ireland. There's a people with just last name O'Neill. There's a couple million of them, mm-hmm. but if they appears to trace back to a certain high king of Ireland back mm-hmm. to about 600 A.D. Mm-hmm. Neil of the Nine Hostages, mm-hmm. which also shows something about the personality traits that are favored mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> to uh, in rising to the top. <laughs> yeah, they, they, there's no reason to think that they're necessarily anything you like, although they might be some of the time, but. I think that uh, uh, there's also changes not so much in the hierarchy as just in the way you make a living. Yeah. You need to, uh, if you're a farmer as opposed to a hunter, you need to do a lot of saving and planning for the future. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying it was zero, that there was no such planning, but there's more. Yeah. And there's also a lot of there's self-denial. One of the simplest forms is, you know, in the, in the spring, you have to plant your seed rather than eat it. Mm-hmm. You have to save some of your animals for breeding stock rather mm-hmm. than eat them. And, and that's actually kind of the shortest period of the year. Mm-hmm. But oh, let me go back a minute. Uh, I have seen people explain that, well, as we know, people are always prosperous in Europe. And I'm thinking, you're not Irish, are you? Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's... I said, but, but the other thing is, you're not very illiterate. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, like during the time of the Sun King, France had a couple of bad years mm-hmm. of weather. I think it was about 1709. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they'd also sort of run down all their cash reserves by fighting everybody in Europe for too long, mm-hmm. 10% of the people in France starve to death. Yeah, that's reasonably, that's, that's, that's not terribly uncommon. In fact, it's happened in the 20th century a couple of times, too, um, uh, notably well, the, in Ukraine. Um, but, yeah, well, no, there, I, there it's more people working at it. But, mm-hmm. you know, just, it happens, any time you had, a, there are also many regional ones. I mean, a whole, you know, one to hit a whole France is less usual, mm-hmm. but... Basically, any time you had two straight years of bad weather, mm-hmm. you had people eating grass. Yeah, no. Uh, in, in, except for the most prosperous parts of Europe, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it was uh, people just don't understand what it used to be like. I mean, mm-hmm. it's never been like that in the United States history. No, it's true, and that and that, that does hinder our ability to understand these things. There's no, there's no, I fight this every day. Um, but, but where, where right. people in Iowa, you know, which has some incredible percentage of the world's productive soil, uh, they just don't. Really, they can't wrap their minds around the fact that there are, there are people starving, and that 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 uh, most of uh, through most of human history, people were on the verge of starving. Um, then, l- l- let me ask you to, to, to talk. We're almost out of time here, but let me ask you to talk okay. a little bit about um, uh, what, what is uh, probably the most talked about part of, of of your own work, and that is this thesis about the Ashkenazi Jews and the population uh, and the and the um, natural selective pressure which um, you propose they were under in the European Middle Ages. Maybe you could just lay out the basics of that argument for us. Right, okay. Uh, the idea is that today Ashkenazi Jews, European Jews, do a perfect imitation of being somewhat smarter than average. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, in terms of their occupations, in terms of the number of people who are, you know, you know, tr- you know, very high performers and, you know, in, have done important intellectual work, mm-hmm. you know, o- Tremendously overrepresented. By overrepresented, I mean more than their fraction of the population. And mm-hmm. things like Nobel, Nobel Prizes, scientific work, and mm-hmm. so forth. Uh, I, and, I, I was going to say I know a lot of these people, and they're not as good at uh, at basketball as my people. 
That, that's the only it's thing I can It's not impossible. <laughs> it could be true. Uh, in fact, I suggest in the book that if you, if you get selection that makes you better at X, usually means you left, but yeah, left I get, good at the things you use. Yeah, one of my couple of my best friends. Yeah, I can beat them in basketball. There's no question. I know they're smarter than I am, but I can beat them. But anyway, but, I'm put that aside. At any rate, yeah. um, now, uh, I said, well, one simple explanation, it's not the only possible explanation, is that, well, maybe they really, I mean, is this cultural? I said, well, we don't know of any cultural things that do that. People invoke it, but there's no evidence for any such thing. Okay. The second says, well, could it be biological? I said, mm-hmm. well, if it, it could, but it would take sort of special situations. I said, they'd have to be genetically pretty isolated from their neighbors, because if you're not isolated, you can't be very different from your neighbors. Mm-hmm. In other words, so they must have had low intermarriage rates. Mm-hmm. I said, oh, guess what? They did. Endogamy. I, yeah. uh, not, 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 just, not just by historical report, but you can check it in the genetics. Yeah. Okay. So you can see that they're a separate group. I said, what else? You would have needed a situation where probably they were subject to an unusual situation. Well, I mean, like maybe they had different rewards for IQ than other people. I said, well, they had pretty much white-collar jobs in the Middle Ages, and that's not true of any other group. Mm-hmm. It's not true of any other group that they were mostly 90% white-collar jobs. And mm-hmm. The other groups were 90% farmers. Mm-hmm. Um, and the next thing is you need a situation where the more successful you were at these sort of jobs, which are fairly IQ-intensive, at least today, mm-hmm. uh, the more kids you have. And that's what the case was. That was also the general case in Europe. The richer you were, say, before 1800, the more kids you had grow up. Mm-hmm. So this is not true today. And another thing, you have to go against people's intuition because they have to take this major step that the world was once actually different than the suburb they live in. It's a lot of hard for people <laughs> to realize that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, people who talk about diversity don't have any picture in their head of what any of it is. Mm-hmm. I figure that's why they're for it. Mm-hmm. Is there any? Let me just ask you this: uh, a, question, a question which I can I can definitely uh, that I, I want to ask, and I know that historians would want to ask. And that is: Is there any direct primary demographic evidence of differential reproduction uh, among um, among, let's say, uh, the the, uh, the the more successful Jews as opposed to the less successful Jews? There's and, a lot and, of reports to that effect. There aren't censuses that show this because yeah, there weren't any censuses. Weren't any censuses but yeah. in the in the books I can find on this history. They talk about that exact thing happening all the time. Uh-huh. They say it's the rich guys who had the majority of the kids. Who, who, they, they might have five, even six kids survive, uh-huh. and the number was probably less than two for the for the bottom quarter. Uh-huh. I mean, uh-huh. I don't know if this this differential may not have been much different than the rest of Europe, because uh-huh. this was kind of a general phenomena. Right. But but the 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 the. The things you were succeeding at were different. Mm-hmm. I see. So what, let me ask you uh, this For question. the most part. Uh, one, one is yeah. I, also, I also have many Armenian friends, and they're all smarter than I am, too. Uh, what, do I you, wonder about that. Well, I don't know. The, the, uh, so what I, don't have any, <laughs> I don't have any evidence. I don't have the same extensive genetic evidence that I do yeah. for the Jews. Yeah. I mean, you know. But Armenians, I mean, Arme- the reason I mention Armenians is they were in a similar sort of situation. I mean, if you look at early Some modern of them Europe, were. That they, they were, Some you know, of them the, were, yeah. These Western Armenians were. Some of know, them were even in Eastern Europe as neighbors of the Jews and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. Do we see a similar sort of effect there with Armenians? I, I don't ha- a I don't have the genetic evidence because nobody's done a zillion things on Armenians. I see. I but I know the names of a lot of the guys who won the world ch- chess championships, and I remember Petrosian. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. and I, I remember a fair number of other guys who have been pretty. It'd, it'd be interesting to study as a case because they. But I also know that this was the common belief in Byzantine times. Yeah, no, that's true. People. 
people said, well, you know, they're smarter than us. Yeah, I mean, Armenians. the Greeks said that, yeah, no, it's true. which is actually saying something. Right, but we have to, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, in order to convince historians There may stuff, be other cases. Is that we need to go beyond the anecdotal and try to find something that's a little bit more systematic. Right, I mean, because you know, there are groups I wondered case, about. Yeah, if it is but the case I, with I don't Jews, have it should the be the case with Armenians, too. Uh, people have talked about Parsis or certain cases in yeah, India. I don't know, I, I know some Parsi, actually, I know a Parsi very well, but I don't know much about the Parsis. I do know quite a bit about the Armenians and quite a bit about uh, the Jews, and that they were relatively endogamous for religious reasons, and that they tended to be shuffled into these, uh, what you call, quite accurately, kind of white-collar occupations. But then to take the step further, you know, and to say that there was differential reproduction among those that were successful, you know, again, we, we'd like to have some sort of primary Well, we have, we have quite a bit of, uh, of uh, you know, biographical information that yeah. indicates that. There's certainly nothing. And the thing is, in those days, I mean, you have a couple of ingredients. One's cultural. One is approving or liking children. I mean, uh -huh. I, I can tell you times in the past or the, today. I mean, look, you can always get rid of children if you don't want them. Yeah. The Romans did. They didn't need, although they sometimes had a form of birth control, other times yeah. they'd just throw them out yeah. uh, you know, on the dump to be eaten by dogs. Mm -hmm. yeah. The Greeks would do that. Yeah. But, by the way, they didn't always do that. It's certain, in uh, classical Greece, not so much. In Hellenistic Greece, they did it a lot. Mm -hmm. It's varied with time. But the point is, you know, some of it is, is cultural. I mean, rather, all of this is cultural, too, because you have to have... You know the prohibition on the Christians doing you know, loaning an interest, mm -hmm. probably to, yeah. as the background condition. You yeah. have to have the Jews sort of commanded to become literate. You have to have them commanded to not intermarry. Mm -hmm. You have to have them approve of having children. It's a good thing. Yeah, no. those are all cultural things. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so I said, uh, you know, culture and uh, human evolution are. I think you would have trouble separating them at this point with a knife. They affect yeah, each other. Absolutely. That's true. Let me, let me, uh, we're, we're, again, we're almost out of time, but I, I really am interested in hearing your thoughts on this. What, uh, how, how, how has the book been received? Uh, not too bad. Uh, I mean, of course, you know, I would like it, of course, to sell millions of copies <laughs> somehow, but I, I left out all the teenage girls and vampires yeah, at the last right. minute. You know, they, they made me cut that. Yeah. And, and, and that was a terrible <laughs> mistake. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, uh, not too bad. Uh, I think that the I think the human genetics community will probably not, in general, agree, but some of them will. Uh, they have a different picture, and they have different necessities than I do. They have their preferred picture involves random chance causing all kinds of things, uh, which involves you know tiny human populations during times we know they weren't tiny. I don't really quite understand their point of view, but I. Uh, the other problem is, is when people say, you know, there were human differences, and says, you mean difference X, the one we all hate to think about? I said, yeah, that one too, mm -hmm. all of them, whatever, whatever that is for you. That's, it's probably there, yeah. or at least it can be there. If it looks like it's there, you can't say it's impossible. Mm -hmm. So the, the point is, there's a lot of consequences. A lot of people have designed the theories because they said we don't want certain answers to be true. I said, but that doesn't help you, yeah. because I said, you know, that's like going to a doctor who guarantees that the biopsy will always be mm -hmm. negative. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't that make a great doctor? Yeah. yeah. I mean, if he just says, I'll tell you whatever you want to hear, right. and I'll charge less. Yeah. No, exactly. So I, I think there's been a very strong impulse in that direction to say, you know, you know, every group difference that we don't like doesn't really exist. Mm -hmm. Are there a lot even, of if, even if we observe it every single time we look. Right. So are there a lot of people working in this field now? I mean, I think they're in the genetics community, and I know some of those people. They're, they're working doing, very Doing active. the sort of stuff that uh, I'm talking about? Yeah, uh-huh. No, of course not. Uh, I mean, if we're talking about people who are doing genetic work that will inadvertently un un tell you some things like this, mm -hmm. sure. But, you know, you know, it's weird. I mean, the typical guy doing human genetics, human genomics, 
I said, well, what if we found the, you know, the thing that explained why Group X is seven times more likely to go to prison? I said, we don't want to know. Yeah. I said, oh, I don't know, that'd be kind of useful. Maybe you could do something about it. We don't want to know. It doesn't mm-hmm. exist. I said, but that's happening. Mm-hmm. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. Go look. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, you know, other things like that. Uh, or I mean, I talk about why do we think one group is ever so much more likely to produce uh, a Nobel Prize winner. Mm-hmm. But that's sort of acceptable. It's not entirely acceptable, but it's sort of acceptable. I said, but... You know, that's just uh, flipping the other relationship. Yeah, no, I see what you mean. Uh, but I said, I think it's better if we can understand things, we can hopefully do some things about them. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that if we don't, we won't. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I, think, I think the thing people are worried about, and I guess I would be worried about it too, is, is that, you know, uh, in, in the past, this kind of logic has gotten into the hands of people who aren't very smart and who have some relatively sharp axes to grind. And, and that's, been, yeah, that's but, had some very unfortunate consequences. But it's, I mean, people who have thought that all, you know, that genetics had no influence on humans have have managed to, you know, that Ukrainian famine wasn't done yeah, by no, racists. that's right. No, it wasn't. Uh, that's true. Uh, well, not entirely, anyhow. Yeah. The, uh, the other thing is that uh, also people are perfectly good at fighting. Look, I think Iraq should be a lesson to all of us. People are perfectly good at starting wars for no reason at all. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. You don't need reasons. Uh, and so it's not too fair to blame the people who they claim they yeah. used as a reason. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but uh, I think that you could... Well, what was it? Somebody once said, you know, knowledge is a power so great it can only be used for good or evil. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> I think that was Fireside Theater. Uh, yeah, I don't know what the, that means exactly, but go ahead. No, it did nothing, but, <laughs> but the point is, you know, you can do good or bad with any piece of knowledge. Yeah. Uh, and, but on the whole, if we choose to use something, it's better to know stuff, really. I mean, we tried not knowing things for thousands of years. It didn't yeah. work at all. Uh, we still have, you know, people... You know, people still do bad things. Yeah, uh, no, I know. Uh, and, and, and it's a practical matter. For example, suppose you knew that uh, we learned a little bit of brain biochemistry that says, hey, maybe we could help some kid who has a problem. Yeah. Uh, among other things. So, anyhow, I, I think this is where the theory leads you. It leads you to say that, you know, there's no reason things can't be fairly different. And what, boy, when we look, they really are. Yeah. No, I, I, see, I, see, I see just what you're, what you're saying. Uh, and, 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 you know, I just. It, I, I just think it's important to, to proceed very carefully with this stuff, because precisely because it, it does um, raise so many hackles. And, and uh, uh, to say the work shouldn't be done, it should be done. But uh, you know, it's it's important to make sure that everybody understands everything. At, and that's part of what this podcast is about: is make sure that everyone understands exactly uh, what you're trying to do. Well, and, here's here's a here's a very small, finite example. Mm-hmm. It looks like you know when people started farming, they started growing grain, they started making fermented drinks. Mm-hmm. Some people have been drinking. You know, to some extent, for eight or ten thousand years. Some people started yesterday. Mm-hmm. As far as I can tell, the people started yesterday all have more problems with it than the people who've been doing it for eight thousand yeah. years. Yeah, well, that's a good. Uh, I, I know of no exceptions to that. Australian yeah. Aborigines have big problems. American, some American Indians more than others. Again, mm-hmm. probably the ones who didn't farm long or mm-hmm. not at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eskimos. I mean, they didn't farm. It doesn't work up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 and you're having big problems with the Bushmen and mm-hmm. drinking. Mm-hmm. I said no. I said well. Well, what if I understood how this worked? I said, well, it might be helpful, but it won't make anything any worse. They're already drinking. Yeah, And and, uh, I said, maybe you'll understand why. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, and for that matter, I mean, people in Northern Europe are more likely to be alcoholic than people in Southern Europe, and it looks like it may be time, you know, the time depth of agriculture difference there. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I, I can, mean, I can, I can tell you, ever since Italy. Yeah, I can tell you this: alcoholism killed my father, and I would have been very happy to have met someone with a cure. So, uh, oh, that's, <laughs> uh, so no, that's okay. Yeah. That's I mean, again, I'm, I'm totally with you there. I would have loved if to have seen. I, oh, I would like wait. to know more about. How, I would have too. Yeah, about how it ticks. Yeah, no, I, I yeah, no, I agree. And completely. we know a little. We like we know a couple of genes that, for some reason, make it harder to be an alcoholic. Yeah. Uh, the metabolism goes somewhat differently, but yeah. it's fairly common in East Asia. They yeah. don't. Not everybody has it, but if you do have it, it's kind of hard yeah, to no. become an alcoholic because you feel so lousy in the hangover time. Yeah, no, right, uh, exactly. So uh, the, but, but you know, it, it could be useful. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you completely. Let me, um, uh, Greg. We've taken up a huge amount of your time, and it's been a fascinating conversation. Let me close sure. with uh, our traditional final question here on New Books in History, and that is, what is your next project? What are you working on now? Well, I'm working on a little, a small little thing right now. Uh, looking at a, a, a common genetic, the most common genetic disease in the general European population, which is cystic fibrosis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it, if I'm right, there's a very simple way of calculating things uh, that shows you for sure that it had to have an advantage. And the extra piece of information I'm adding to the mix is using uh, a, a sort of general knowledge of European history in particular, knowing that the human race in Europe never nearly got wiped out in the last couple of thousand years. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, this should be a real short and simple paper, and it's something somebody should have written a long time ago. This is mm-hmm. kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Well, we uh, look forward to reading it um, when it comes out. Um, I, should, I should tell um, our listener that we've been talking to um, Greg Cochran about his new book that he co-authored with Henry Harpending, The 10,000-Year Explosion, How Civilization Accelerated uh, Human Evolution. Uh, uh, Greg hopes that uh, it sells millions of copies, and I uh, strongly encourage you to go buy it. Let's so strongly that we can... doubt it. Well, yeah, that's okay. Hope springs eternal in the human breast. But anyway, Greg, thanks very much for talking with us today, okay? Okay. All right. Take care now. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Gregory Cochran, who with Henry Harpending, is the author of The 10,000-Year Explosion, How Civilization Accelerated Human Evolution. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week. Music